Today we're going to be studying about the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets in the history of the Christian church. You had the experience of Jesus dying on the cross. Just prior to that was the experience of the Lord's Supper. Following that, by 50 days, was the experience of Pentecost. These were fulfillments of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. And in each case, the feast was fulfilled on even the same day of the same month as the feast occurred in the Jewish history. Isn't that interesting? Unleavened bread, fulfilled on the Lord's Supper. Well, it's a several-day feast. The last day of it was the Passover. The Passover, the time Jesus died, and then the Pentecost was fulfilled on Pentecost. What does Penta mean? It's it's referring to 50 days. It's seven weeks after the Passover. That's when it happened on Pentecost. The Feast of First Fruits was a reference, well, the wave sheath in particular, was a reference to those that were resurrected with Jesus, well, when he died and were taken to heaven with him when he ascended. And I'm about to move to a different set of, of feasts. These happen in the first two months, or first two and a half months of the Jewish year, and represented the events in the beginning of the Christian age. But beginning in the seventh month, seven being a number that often has represented the end or completeness, beginning in the seventh month were another series of feasts. Those were the Feast of Trumpets, which was followed by the Day of Atonement, whoops, which was followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. When did those feasts all happen? In the seventh month, representing their fulfillment in the end of time. Adventists are more typically familiar with the Day of Atonement being fulfilled in 1844 when Christ entered the Most Holy Place. What day did he enter the Most Holy Place? October 22. Where did we get that date from? We didn't get it from Daniel. We didn't get it from Revelation. We got it from the feast day. Because the feasts are fulfilled on the day that the feast happened as was Pentecost, as was Passover, as was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Is there anyone who's lost and would like me to say something again? Yes. Start over, or would you like me? All right. There were some feasts in the first two months that represented things that happened in the beginning of Christianity. And there were some feasts in the seventh month that represented events that happened in the end of Christian history. Those three feasts are... 
And the three that we're talking about right now in the Adventist church history would be the three in the end. And the three in the end are, in order, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. Trumpets, atonement, tabernacles. Tat. I hope you remember it. The Feast of Trumpets came before the Feast or the Day of Atonement. The Feast of Trumpets was an announcement that the Day of Atonement was coming. The trumpets were blown in a celebrant announcement that the Judgment Day of Atonement was on its way. If a judgment is coming, would you like to prepare? You would. And the Feast of Trumpets was placed so that you could prepare for the Day of Judgment coming. How was it fulfilled? Prior to the beginning of the Judgment in 1844, God sent messengers around the world to warn the world of the soon coming Judgment, of the soon coming Christ. Today we're going to talk about a number of them. And I want you to understand when we mention them by names that they were cumulatively the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. Did it make sense that time? We're going forward. All right. Um, if we were going to do them chronologically, we might start with Bengal. He wrote in the early 1700s, kind of too early, perhaps, for us to put him in this list. Bengal, B-E-N-G-E-L. My G's and S's, you have to listen to the word to know which they are. Bengal was a, a reformer who wrote from the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation about Christ soon coming. He predicted it based on the prophecies of Daniel, just as William Miller did later. He was in Europe. And if there's something about the European expositors that you probably ought to know, they never had the kind of unanimity on the dates that the American expositors had. Does that make any sense to you what I just said? In other words, everyone... In, under William Miller in America, they believed Christ would come back about 1843. Well, if you go to Europe and look at these expositors, they weren't united in that way. They would say some 1860s, some 1880s, some 1840s, some 1820s. Yes, sir. And he, this man lived about 17... Like 1710s. Long before. Long before. That's right. Europe did not go through the kind of disappointment that existed in America because it was not united in this respect. Yes, sir. You said that the prior, the first four were, were, were met on a day that they, were, that they would have been held. So how do we jump into this quite a large group of people, I assume? Kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, how do we transfer that? Here is how I would get into it. The Feast of Trumpets was a seven-day feast, perhaps showing not that there were seven days of announcing the coming judgment, 
but that there was a period of time and it was happening all through it. That's the best I can do with it. It was a valid question when I've asked myself before, and now you know my best answer. If you find a better one, get back with me. Did you all understand his question? Good. All right. We're going. <laughs> yes, sir. I've never seen anyone write on it. I'm not aware. So I'm going to go right away from it because I don't like guessing and there's no sense talking about things you don't know. Right? Yeah. Moving on. The next significant expositor was a man by the name of Manuel Lacunza. Manuel. It's M-A-N-U-E-L, I think. Lacunza is one of those beautiful words spelled phonetically. He was from the country of Chile, South America. But there came a time when the empire, the Spanish empire that was over Chile, became irritated with the Jesuits. Manuel Lacunza happened to be a Jesuit. And they expelled, was it Portuguese or Spanish? Whichever was over Chile expelled the Jesuits. And um, the reason it's confusing to me to say it's Spanish is because you know where he went when he was expelled? Spain. And I'm trying to harmonize that in my mind. It's not working too well. But anyway, that's where he went, and I know it's so. Manuel Lacanzo went to Spain, and he began to study diligently. He, well, he had been already, but he began to study more diligently the prophecies. He realized that, his teeth, that what he was finding was not in harmony with Catholicism. By the way, are, are Jesuits typically scholarly? You know, they typically are very educated men. And it should not surprise us if Jesuits join us in the future. And I fear somewhat the reception that they'll receive if they try. We ought to be kind. But I'm going off of that. Manuel Lacunza was a Jesuit who was an Adventist, who, because of his fear of the Inquisition and what it would do for his writings, published his prophetic expositions under a pseudonym. It was a long pseudonym, but the short version of it is Ben Ezra, B-E-N space E-Z-R-A. Of course, Ezra was considered the ultimate scribe. And what does Ben mean in Hebrew? Son. So it would be like the son of the teachers or the son of the scribes. In other words, it was a name that meant student. Ben Ezra, as the author of this, these prophetic works was known, caused a significant stir throughout Europe. His words were translated into several languages. Did I tell you when, when this guy was operating? No. This is beginning in the 1760s. He's the second one chronologically. It was not till after his death, however, that his works were published. That price saved him some trouble. 
after Ben Ezra, timing the rest chronologically becomes much more complex because there were a number of them, like William Miller, that began studying at one point and teaching privately at another and teaching publicly at another. And so we're dropping the chronological stuff now and just going into a list of them more by what they did. Does that make sense to you what I just said? But it makes sense story-wise to go to um, Mr. Irving, Edward Irving, for our next person. Edward Irving, by the way, is a man that is appreciated as a founder of a number of religious movements. Let's talk about him. He was born in 1792. No, I don't know history so well as to just have those kind of things in my mind. I just happened to have read about him 10 minutes ago. He was born in 1792. And he, at the age of 30, he became a priest in the church, uh, well, in the Presbyterian Church, Church of Scotland. He apparently was an extremely zealous, loving, affectionate teacher. And it was not long before he had to move to a significantly larger church to accommodate his growing congregation. The intelligentsia of London was coming to his chapel. Yes, there was a strong Scottish movement in England, Presbyterian movement. Edward Irving got a hold of a book by Ben Ezra. He could read Latin, and he read it in Latin, but it was not originally written in Latin. It originally was written in Spanish. And so he learned so much from this book on the prophecies that he devoted himself to learning the Spanish language just so he could read a more original, accurate rendition of the work of Ben Ezra. He organized a society to study the prophecies about Christ's second advent. And from that study group, this was really the center of Europeans' Adventism. They concluded, many in the study group, that Jesus would come back in the 1840s. Edward Irving, when he was just about 40 years old, in other words, about eight or nine years into this study experience, growing in popularity, growing in influence, an equivalent in some ways of a combination of Joshua Himes and William Miller put together. That is, he had the knowledge combined with the PR genius. He was preaching in his church one Sunday when... Speaking in tongues broke out in his congregation. He had studied his Bible thoroughly enough to know that there would be a pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the last days. Some of the conservative members of his church immediately condemned the speaking in tongues movement. Edward Irving was not willing to do that. 
because he said he, he did not want to condemn what might be the prophesied revival. He neither sided with it nor sided against it. However, those that sided against it, remember this was a Presbyterian church, not a charismatic one. Those that sided against it put him on trial for heresy for his unwillingness as pastor to take a stand against it. He was removed from his pastorship while this movement grew. He became sick and died. having taken a stand neither against it or for it. I will tell you my personal opinion that I have good hope of seeing Edward Irving in heaven because I know someone else who was inclined to take a wrong position on something going on and that got sick and died. Inexplicably to many, but understandable to Adventists. Who was that? It was William Miller. When he had taken as much as he could take, God laid him to rest so that he would not fight against the truth. And if Edward Irving was, as it seems, perhaps about to side with the Pentecostal movement, it could be that he was laid to rest for that very reason. Anyway, he died at the age, I believe it was, of 42. There was another movement that he's credited with founding, and it's not such a good one. But he really didn't found it. He only put up with it and countenanced it. A lady in his church that had the gift of tongues began to speak about a secret rapture of the church. Edward Irving was, was inclined to believe that this was the truth. As I told you, he died. But sometime after his death, this idea was picked up by an American by the name of Schofield. And from there, it became the dominant doctrine of prophetic interpretation among the Baptists and from there to evangelical religion in general. So that there are two movements that oppose each other greatly. The Baptist evangelical movement and the Pentecostal movement, and both can to some extent trace themselves back to this Adventist expositor, Edward Irving. Isn't that very interesting? Those who believe in the secret rapture, which are characterized by or are primarily the Baptist and evangelicals today. Another very notable man who became active before Edward Irving and was also active after him, by virtue of the fact that Edward Irving was not active very long, was Joseph Wolfe. Joseph Wolf, I believe, but I'm not certain of this, began his priestly ministry in Italy. I truly don't remember if that was where it was. 
Actually, it seems like he began somewhere else and had to go to Italy to be spied on better because he was not conforming well enough to accepted Catholic norms. Maybe I should mention Joseph Wolf did not grow up as a Catholic. He grew up as a Jew. His conversion to Catholicism is very interesting. It was only Christianity that was anywhere around him. Maybe you've read about it in the Great Controversy. He was reading in his Bible one day, his Old Testament, his Jewish Old Testament, when he found Isaiah 53. And he wondered who it was about. And he asked a rabbi about it and was severely rebuked for studying it. What do you suppose the rabbi thought? If a young boy comes and asks about Isaiah 53, who's he been talking to? Certainly he has. But it weren't so. But it did make a difference to the young mind if he's forbidden to study. What's a young man want to study when he's told not to study something? He went after Isaiah 53 and concluded that Jesus was the Messiah, gave up Judaism and joined the Catholicism that he knew as Christianity. But he wasn't an obedient Catholic. He continued studying for himself just like he'd thought for himself as a Jew. In other words, Judaism and Catholicism are very similar religions, and if you end up leaving one, you're probably going to leave the other. He did. He eventually became kind of his own religion, the preacher of the Advent near. I think he put the date, based on this 2300-day prophecy, at 1846. That's also a possibly fallible memory, but I, I think that's right. And... 1846. This is the credit I give to Joseph Wolf. He saw in the first angel's message that not only did it say the hour of judgment has come, but it said that the gospel should be preached to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. Well, he found that there were people preaching it in England, and there were people preaching it in Scandinavia, there were people preaching it in Germany, and the writings of Ben Ezra were circulated in the Spanish-speaking and Italian-speaking countries of Europe, in other words, where was it being preached? Europe. Europe. Was that the whole world? So what did he do? He began traveling. He went first to Arabia. He went through a number of Muslim countries, threatened with death repeatedly. He just kept marching. He was told he would die. He kept marching. And the story of it is incredible, how he kept going. You know how far he went? He went to India. When he was done preaching to what was the known world there, did he think he was done? You know where else he went? He came to America by boat to preach. Do you see he was ahead of William Miller in some respects? Joseph Wolf was a great man. But there's no chapter about him in the Great Controversy. He's just mentioned there. You'll find him in the chapter Heralds in the Morning. Another man who preached on the continent was Gossen, G-A-U-S-S-E-N. I'm just going to leave Gossen because there's nothing notable about him in my mind except that he did it. And I'm going to go to America. What is it 
about William Miller that sets him apart and stands him alone among these other men that were all fulfilling the Feast of Trumpets, preaching where they were and what they were doing. There is something that sets him apart, and that is he was right. More right. In other words, these other men were doing the right thing, That is, they found the fact that Jesus was coming soon. They studied it some. They were studious. They believed it. They preached it. They went out and got the message out. God gives them credit for that. They were doing a good thing. But William Miller was a more careful Bible student. For two decades, he went after serious study And this is why he was accurate in his presentations on so many things that they were wrong about. For example, they believed, many of the European expositors, that the Jews would be converted in the end of time. That came from a literal reading of the book of Revelation. They had other other doctrinal errors and a lack of uniformity. But here's William Miller Because he studied so thoroughly, his converts adopted his theory almost in whole. And who was most inclined to accept his theory? The people who were most biblical. So that it was a less fertile ground for the kind of extravagances that happened in Europe. This is not to say that nothing happened fanatical in America. Maybe we should tell a bit about the life of William Miller. William Miller was raised in a family that was Christian, but in a community that had adopted deistic sentiments. You might ask, what is deism? I don't remember. So here's the answer. Deism is the belief that God exists. That comes from the word deity. But that's about it. Deism is one rational attempt to get around the question, why does God allow sin and suffering? Deism approaches the question like this. God obviously exists because these things could not have just happened. God obviously does not take a personal interest in this world because all of these terrible things happen. You follow those two steps of logic. That was deism. Thomas Jefferson was of deistic sentiments. Ellen might comment something about deism about why it had such an influence, and eventually William Miller adopted deism, much to the consternation of his religious mother and relatives. The deism around William Miller's area was morally had rectitude, moral rectitude. That is, the deists there were honest in trade, faithful to their wives, 
did not cuss and swear and were not alcoholics. They were exemplary citizens. And for the most part, more exemplary than the non-deistic, non-deistical contemporaries of a less educated nature. That is, those that were, what's the word? I'm, it's not gross, the word I'm looking for. Base, maybe, is a good one. Uneducated people many times are more vulgar in their speech, less, less noble in their relation to others. Who were some of the men that the deist enjoyed reading? You might have heard names like Hume, H-U-M-E, and Geneva. He died. His face looks evil. His name. What? Voltaire, exactly. Doesn't his name sound evil too? Sounds like Vulture. Yeah, exactly, Voltaire. Voltaire had a very bright mind. And what he rejected was Catholicism, but what he thought it was was Christianity. It's a big trick. Devil uses it a lot. I mean, the trick is this. The trick is to get you to reject truth by having it presented to you by a, a poor source. Anyway, I'm distracting myself going forward. So William Miller became a deist, believing that God was not personally involved in this world. He just let things happen. That is... Not, not like he watched it while it happened, but he created it and went on his way probably doing other interesting things. Maybe making other worlds and other situations. And, you know, God was a big God and can do mighty things. Why would he pay attention to this pipsqueak of a little world? It sort of matched the growing astronomy of the times. When you realize how small the world is, how could you believe God is paying any attention? William Miller ended up... Uh, being a captain in the war of 1812. And in that war, he was involved in a certain battle where his force was supremely outnumbered, not only by numbers of people, but by quality of ammunition and also by experience in warfare. That is, the enemy had all the advantage. And why did they not just surrender immediately? Because they believed in that America would win eventually. And they were willing to give their lives for this, to win freedom for us. So they were willing to fight a hopeless cause. You ought to be somewhat grateful to people like that. Anyway, they didn't lose. They won. And the tide of battle was so remarkable to William Miller that the experience overthrew deism. Do you understand how an experience could overthrow deism? What is, it, what is it, one of the tenets of deism? God is not involved. 
What did he observe in the battle? God was involved. What he observed was that incredible, incredible providences kept happening in favor of, the, of his side, as if providence determined that they would win. So deism overthrew, it made him want to go back and study the Bible. And he, what he found in the Bible was a savior just such as he imagined he needed. William Miller began a methodical study of the scripture. He did not like Ben Ezra and, and Gosson and Irving kind of hop into prophecy in the middle. He began with Genesis 1, and studied the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it was when he came to the prophecies of Daniel that he studied them. One of the most remarkable virtues of William Miller, to my mind, was this. At least if you can credit what he said about himself that after he had been preaching the message of the soon coming advent for more than 10 years publicly, opposed by hundreds of America's greatest scholars of all persuasions, that never once had an objection been brought against his doctrine that he had not thought of before he even began speaking. He went further. He said, and there were many objections that he had thought of against his own position that no one ever suggested to him in his preaching. When he was criticizing his own position, many objections to his doctrine suggested themselves to him that he studied out and overthrew that no one else in his entire life ever brought up as an objection against his doctrine. If we would study that way, we would not be shaken out intellectually in the shaking. Spiritually, we would still might be in danger. Mr. Cervantes. Yeah, I do. Uh, did you hear Mr. Cervantes's question? He says, how did William Miller rebut this idea that no man knows the day or the hour? Here is the way that he rebutted it from 1833 until October 1, 1844. I agree, no one knows the day or the hour. But we're certainly commanded to know when it is near. And there's no reason why we cannot know the year. And there's a possibility it will happen early because there are prophecies that he will cut it short in righteousness. So I will say that he will come on or before that uh, year. William Miller was not the one who settled on days of the year. He resisted that because of that uh, biblical statement. 
However, in October of 1844, about two weeks before October 22, the power of the Spirit of God moving behind the October 22 movement and the power of what he observed and the logic of the reasoning was such that William Miller did conclude that October 22 must be the right day. And I suppose if you'd asked him during those two weeks how he would answer it, he would say he doesn't know how to harmonize these two lines of data, but this line of data looks stronger. That's a guess. I've never seen him respond to that question. Did you understand my answer and his question? When William Miller began preaching in New England, very many ministers enjoyed enjoyed having William Miller come to their church. Don't you remember from your own study why they enjoyed Miller preaching? Exactly that. William Miller, in his preaching style... Mr. Alistair has a position with General Youth Conference. I'm preaching to you about this. And for anyone else who ever ends up having influence there, here it comes. And this will be an audio verse. So for anyone who listens to this, here it is. The greatest revival in all American history came from a man who was anything but charismatic in his preaching. He was nearly what some would call boring in his speaking manner. But never was his audience bored. Their interest was riveted by the biblical content of his message. His manner and appearance was so far below what we would associate with a public evangelist that when he was invited by fame to come speak at the church of Josiah Litch, when Josiah Litch met him, he was embarrassed to go on the pulpit with him and briefly introduced him and sat on the front row as an evidence to his church that he did not want to be associated with this fanatic. But when William Miller began preaching, Litch was taken with the preaching, got up, and went and sat behind him for the remainder of the sermon. Litch is interesting in this respect because he was only the second minister out of hundreds that had apparently accepted and scores that had joined Miller in preaching, he was only the second one who lasted more than a few weeks. That is, what happened to Miller's movement while it was growing? Many ministers countenanced it, liked it, encouraged it, but they refused to put their energy into it. They totally refused 
you'll find much of much of Mar Martin Luther, much of William Miller's correspondence, early correspondence is between him and a pastor named Hendricks. Hendricks is not the first minister, if that's what you're going to ask. I'll get to that in a minute. Hendricks was a pretty typical minister. He seemed to believe what William Miller taught. And William Miller encouraged Hendricks by letters over and over again to preach it with power, preach it with power. It was when William Miller had died that Hendricks handed over many of those letters to his biographer, Sylvester Bliss. Hendricks didn't do it. Who was the first one to join him? That was Charles Fitch. You ought to write that name down just because your pen should be honored to scribble it. Charles Fitch is an amazing man in Adventist history. Shall I tell you some of the amazing things about him? First of all, he was sweet and meek. And he's going to be in heaven. He's one of only two people that I know of that Ellen White saw as being in heaven. You know how he died? Baptizing people in a... They had to break a hole in the ice to baptize them a couple of weeks before October 22, 1844. There was no time to wait for spring, so he stood in the icy water, baptized them, caught pneumonia, and died on the Tuesday before the Great Disappointment. He was married and had two boys. His mother was a thorough convert to his teaching and told her boys not to weep at his funeral. They would see their dad in just a few more days. Charles Fitch gets another positive. Besides being the first man to join William Miller with his energy to teach, he was the first to conclude the meaning of the second angel's message. That is, you can give William Miller credit for being the one who announced the first angel's message in North America. Behold, the hour of his judgment has come. That was the message taken up by most of the Millerites. But in 1842, the second angel's message began to be preached by Charles Fitch and was adopted by a number of others. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Which, of course, comes with the Revelation 18 message, come out of her, my people. That was a big difference between Fitch and William Miller. William Miller never called people to leave their denominations. In fact, he discouraged the forming of an Adventist denomination. He thought it would only be a hindrance to the promulgation of the truth, to make it a denominational issue. Although William Miller eventually did join Charles Fitch in his views because the churches turned solidly against William Miller and began to disfellowship their members that had his opinions. I suppose you know one of the prominent members that was disfellowshipped for having his opinions. Do you know someone who was? 
The Harmons, that's right, Ellen's family, were disfellowshipped from the Methodist Church for no other reason than believing in Miller's doctrine. How many of you have already read Chapter 2 in Lightbearers? Oh, good! Half the group is doing the pre-reading. I'm so happy. All right, in our last five minutes, since there's a hundred things that I haven't gone over, is there anything that touched you or was interesting to you that you'd like to mention from your reading that we haven't talked about? Something. If you don't raise your hands, I'll name some things, but this is an opportunity for you. Did you all notice about the preaching in Scandinavia? Who did it? It was very similar to what happened in the Middle Ages in Scandinavia. And children preached with the very words of Scripture that could not yet read. I tell you, Heidi and I plan to have children likely in the next couple of years. Well, a child. I don't mean we'll get two in two years. But, you know, we plan to get started. Is it possible if you have children in this age that they will accomplish something in God's final work if they're only five years old when things wrap up? Teach them right, and it's very possible. Anything else you noted? Isn't that encouraging? There are some balancing statements you could find around that might indicate you might not want to have children in this age. Just so you know, you might want to look around. Did you note that they had people preaching in Australia? You'll find that on page 28. All right, if you look on page 33, you'll see a picture of Josiah Litch there. We'll close with this. Josiah Litch made his contribution to Adventism by making it by introducing the exposition of the seven trumpets. Daniel, Daniel, William Miller was sticking mostly with Daniel. Josiah Litch, based on the seven trumpets, concluded that the Ottoman Empire would fall in the fall of 1840. As he got to the middle of 1840, he concluded that it would be August. As he got to July, he concluded that it would be August 11. His confidence in the fulfillment of prophecy was increasing. And on August 11, 1840, because Josiah Litch was a very prominent minister, this, do you realize if you make a prediction like that of a very specific thing happening on a very specific day, this is delightsome to the general public. Because if you say a general thing will happen generally in the future, like there's going to be a big war between America and communism in the future, how can you be evaluated if you prophesied correctly? But if you say August 11, 1840, Ottoman Empire falls you can expose this hoax for what it is. So on August 11, 1840, a number of newspapers in North America ran headlines, Lich fails, Adventism flounders, false prophet embarrassed, and whatever large letters they could get to do it. <laughs> it took a while to get the news over here from Europe. But on August 11, 1840, just as the Ottoman Empire had risen to its power by, by independence from European control, 
that it fell by submitting to European control. It was incredible. Josiah Litch began to receive letters from infidels, and there were infidels aplenty at this time of our history because the deism of 20 years before is a developing system. And where does deism end up eventually? Eventually you can see clearly that you don't really need God once you have the doctrines of Darwin being promulgated. Darwin published his uh, exposition in 1844. So what happened was, uh, according to Litch, that he received thousand, a letter from a thousand infidels stating that they had given up infidelity and become Bible-believing Christians based on the fulfillment of the prophecy of, De of Revelation chapter 9. That's enough to learn for one day. You are dismissed. <laughs>